Look up idiots in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that consensus has deemed important, and thus I created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month, I'm exploring some highbrow horror films as recommended by Benny Crown, and in this week's episode, I'll be talking about Yorgos Lanthimos's 2017 film, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, and I am going to do something to start the show, um that I often do, which is to steal words from other people, uh, to um, basically explain, not explain, but to kind of summarize my thoughts, because oftentimes people, other people have done it so much better than I have, so I figure um, if I'm going to steal, I might as well steal from the best, or at least the most succinct. This comes from um, a review for RogerEbert.com by Brian Telerico, and it says, A man who plays God for a living meets a boy who chooses to play the devil. Lanthimos is working in a deeply metaphorical register, using an impossible situation to illuminate relatable human fears. The result is a mesmerizing thriller, a movie that asks questions with no good answers and traps us within its terrifying and bizarre situation until little hope for a happy ending. Oh, I'm sorry, not until with little hope for a happy ending. Um, I often can't read my own handwriting, which, uh, what does that say about me? But, um... That, of course, is once again the review from um, Brian Telerico at RogerEbert.com. I have linked to that in the show notes if you want to read it in full, and I will put it on the Facebook page for ID Movies Badly as well. But it, it, it encapsulates mostly kind of my general thoughts about it. Um, I want to save it for a little bit later, but the, this idea of the movie Ask Questions with No Good Answers is something I want to address at the end of this episode because of um, sort of how... Those those sort of things were, were what I kind of stumbled over, but for the most part, I do agree with that uh, summation, um, at least of of the film and uh, what Lanthimos is doing with the killing of a sacred deer. Um, I found it very effective, um, and I, I really am really becoming a big fan of Yorgos Lanthimos. Once again, if you recall my conversation with Benny in the introduction, um to this theme and this month, um, I I don't really remember Dogtooth, I, and I haven't seen any of the work that he did before that, but, I mean, The Lobster, The Favorite, and now here with The Killing of a Sacred Deer, I am really quite a fan of what he does and what he is doing, and despite the fact that I'd seen some of his previous work, I was still kind of surprised by what he is doing with his movies, at least his directing style, and how he approaches a movie in terms of both his directorial choices, but also in terms of his attitude towards life and people and civilization in general. Um, I, I really did. The Favorite made my, my top 10 of, um, I believe, was it 2018 or 2019? Whatever year The Favorite came out. 2019, I believe. Uh, what is time anymore in a pandemic? Um, that was It was one of my favorites, and it started with... Um, uh, how the film looked, which is an exaggeration in, in its wide-angle lenses, but it starts 
maybe not starts, but you have that here in how wide everything is and how he uses these wide lenses. And the favorite, it's almost kind of fisheye in how the edges of the frame distort just a little bit, and it really enhances the farcical nature of that story. Um, this story is a lot darker than The Favorite, though there is certainly humor to be found, which is also something that I will get to in just a little bit. But um, Lanthimos wants us to be keyed into the fact that this, if not this family, then the patriarch of this family, Stephen, the absurdity that exists within him as a person and how he acts and interacts with the world around him there is some absurdity there and you really get that sense of it from these wide angle lenses how there's really kind of a something not realistic about how he chooses to shoot this film or at least something that's kind of surreal or imitating or hinting at reality but not actually depicting reality um and that is highlighted or, or accented or re-emphasized, whatever word you want to choose, by this very dry delivery. And I'd say, at least for the first half of the film, a borderline earnest delivery of lines. I was texting Benny while I was watching this movie, and, and I said something to the effect of um, this script without actors giving voice to it, and most of the time even with the actors giving voice to it, this script sounds a lot like it was written by an artificial intelligence in the sense of how all the words make sense. The sentences don't sound weird. The syntax is all correct, um, but it's not natural. It's not actually how people speak. Um, either artificial intelligence or a 13-year-old that sat down to write his, like, his or her movie for the very first time and then got through one draft and said, like, this is it, please make this movie for me. It imitates people, but it doesn't sound like people. And it re-emphasizes that unnaturalness. Um, as um, as Telerical said, um, impossible situations to um, illuminate relatable human fears. Emotions and uh how people feel that is very that feels very truthful and very real and very fearful but they don't speak like real people this th these are impossible situations Th these are impossible people these are impossible conversations that they're having because nobody sounds like this and it's almost disarming because like i said before things start kind of unraveling for the first maybe half of this movie it seems like everyone is so earnest with each other, um, that there is no subtext, it's all just text, everyone is saying what they feel, everyone is saying what they want, whether it's appropriate or not, I mean, this is, the very first shot of this film is an open heart surgery taking place, which, thanks for warning me, Benny, um, the real stuff I can't do so well, um, but kind of caught me off guard, and then immediately after that, after the slow, um, pan back from this open heart surgery, is Colin Farrell and Bill Camp uh, having a conversation about what kind of strap to have on their watch and how Stephen, Colin Farrell's character, prefers metal because he's had his for nine years and, and it, it's almost brand new and how leather is bad because it kind of wears down quicker. Like, it doesn't seem... It seems so banal and so incongruous with what has come before it. 
Um, but then it, it's accented or, 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 or it's re-emphasized a little bit later on when people just say things whether the situation calls for it or not, and people respond as though this is entirely normal. Um, he just tells one of his colleagues, my teenage daughter started menstruating, and everyone's just like, yep, that sounds about right, and then just kind of move on to the next conversation. She tells Martin that she has started menstruating, and he just accepts it as is. She eventually sings a song for him, and she doesn't sing very well, and yet it's, it's supposed to be beautiful, or at least we're supposed to believe within this universe that these people believe that this is beautiful, and everything is just kind of cut and dry, and this is how it is, and this is how it is, and this is how it is, in the sense of what people are saying and what people's jobs are. Um, it's very clinical, almost kind of sterile. Um, and it's, it, 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 it very much kind of lays out or, or depicts a world in which things, we take everything at face value or everything is as it appears to be. There is order and there is kind of a regularity and a sameness to things. Even the home, the very elaborate uh, uh, home of, of um, Stephen and his wife, um, Anna, played by Nicole Kidman, um, it's quite large. They, they both make a, an awful lot of money, you can tell. Um, but the home is nothing special. It, it's kind of, it's as sterile and featureless and banal as the hospital in which he works as well. There's no opulence to it. Um, it's just kind of, there's a lot of white it feels like it was a house that was sort of finished construction like the week before. There's nothing special or, or glamorous about it. It's just kind of a big house. And everyone within the house has a role. And it's laid out for us at the, at the very beginning. Um, the daughter, Kim, she has to walk the dog. And um, the son, Bob, he has to water the plants. Well, mom said she watered the plants. Well, it's your job. You have to water the plants. And even once Bob is in the hospital, it's laid out to Kim. Now that Bob is in the hospital, you are in charge of watering the plants. And it's just like there is a way and there is an order of things. And everything is very rigid. Um, and, and, and by having... Things be rigid by having rules, by having an order. There also is then the implication, and then later on the revelation, I suppose, that actions also have consequences. And yet, the action, the largest action that um, changes this, the, the universe or the, the lives of these people involved in this universe, is never even seen. So that rigidity is denied of us, and what is instead given to us is speculation and questions. And that act is Stephen accidentally killing Martin's father through what we assume is a botched surgery. But there are questions that remain as to what played into it. Was it a mistake? Was Stephen drinking? Or had he been drinking? 
Uh, was it just, uh, you know, nothing you can do? This is just kind of how these things play out. We don't know. All we know, though, is that Martin is without a father. Stephen is the most directly responsible for that, though I suppose based on the conversation um, that uh, Matthew, Bill Cam's character, and Anna have later on, it, it, it is there is a, an element of it being botched by Stephen. We, we do find out a little bit, but we, we, don't, we don't know for certain. All we have is speculation, but what we do have are consequences to that action, and the consequences are um, one by one your family is going to die. First, their legs are going to go numb, then they will have no appetite, then they will bleed from their eyes, and then one by one the family will die unless you sacrifice a member of your family to make up for the absence of my father. This is obviously what Martin tells them. Um, and it's a fascinating setup and context, and by creating a world in which there is this on the surface level, an earnestness, a rigidity, and kind of a dryness, it, it, it recalls for me a David Lynch film, specifically Blue Velvet, and just this idea that everything we are seeing is a facade, that um, these wide angles and this dry delivery and this seeming earnestness is keying us all in subconsciously that this is not real or you should not accept any of this at face value that there's something lurking beneath that this is once again this is an imitation of reality this is not actual reality and uh it's it's interesting to me because in the hands of a different filmmaker i'm not going to say better i'm not going to say worse but in the hands of a different filmmaker, this film would be wildly different, I think, at least in how, how it's depicted or what we choose to explore. Um, and, and I'm thinking, you know, specifically, like, let's even say, you know, it, it could be more of a horror film. It could be more of a visceral horror film it could be more of a spiritual horror film if this was a different director working with this what we have is as once again Telerico says um an impossible situation that illuminates relatable human fears and I feel like if another director was making this it you know kind of trying to make it more explicitly horror we kind of have more exploration of Martin's let's call them abilities, or what is it inherent in Martin that allowed him or allowed this force to curse this man, this family? What is it about him that he can say, because you took my father, I am going to take your family members one at a time unless you sacrifice someone to end this curse? What is it about him that, is, that enables him to do this? Um, there might be more of a supernatural exploration or, um, or intervention. Maybe the family would have consulted a, a, a priest or another person who knows more about these, these cursed kind of things. Um, maybe there would be something that is, if not divine, then, then above something that's other um, with a capital O. Because even if you think about 
um, the inspiration for this story, the name, the killing of a sacred deer, where does it come from? You know, it comes from um, the Greek origin of the title is from the, the tale of um, Iphigenia, I believe. I, I might be pronouncing that incorrectly. I probably am. But just this this idea that King Agamemnon accidentally, um, on his way to, to Troy, accidentally killed one of Artemis's sacred deers, and she forbid him from going into the city um, and until basically he sacrificed his daughter to make up for this the sacred deer that Artemis lost and this story has been told in a few different ways and there's a few different iterations but that's just the general tone of it so in that story there is direct intervention and direct action taken by a god by a larger outside of our physical reality kind of entity there is nothing in this film that hints towards that, that speaks towards that. It just kind of happens. The paranormal or the supernatural, whatever you want to call it, exists on the periphery in a possible situation to illuminate relatable human fears. That fear of uncertainty, that fear of loss, that fear of emptiness, and that 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 fear of... What am I going to do or what can I do? What am I capable of doing with this anger that I have towards another person? And the supernatural or the paranormal existing on the periphery is something that I love. I love that in films. And it's so funny to me that this kid's favorite movie, Martin's favorite movie, is Groundhog Day. One, because that's my favorite movie of all time. But two, also because that is a film in which the supernatural exists on the periphery. In which there is no direct invocation of a supernatural force or something that made Phil Connors repeat Groundhog Day over and over again for what we have to assume is, um, if you ask the screenwriter, thousands of years. Um, instead, it just happens. He goes to Punxsutawney. He falls asleep. Let me correct that. He goes to Punxsutawney. He's a shitty person. He falls asleep and he wakes up and has to repeat that day over and over and over again. There is no, there's no even question of him, of Phil Connors, of our protagonist, as to what caused this, what allowed this to happen. It's instead just, this is the situation I'm dealing with. How do I deal with it? How do I get out of it? In The Killing of a Sacred Deer, Martin is very explicit. This is how you get out of it. And yet, until Steve can come to embrace, not even embrace, but accept the reality of what he has to do, he will justify and rationalize every single thing that is happening through this rigid interpretation and approach towards life. He is a man of science. He attempts to explain everything through science. This is a physical medical condition. Okay, if it's not a medical condition, this is a psychological condition. Okay, if it's not a psychological condition... They are faking it. And if they are not faking it, then what is it? And eventually he comes to realize, yeah, it's this weird curse, supernatural thing that's happening, and the only way that he can overcome it is to accept that. There's a somewhat of a parallel there with Groundhog Day in the sense of Phil Connors keeps trying to save the life of this elderly homeless man that he comes across, keeps trying to feed him, give him money, take care of him, bring him to a hospital, even try to resuscitate him 
in an alley on his own. And he comes to realize with the continuous death of that man, there are things that he has no control over. There are things that he cannot change. And it's the acceptance of that larger force. It's the acceptance of that lack of control that allows him to progress, to move on, to recognize his own limitations. And Stephen does the same thing. It's eventually the recognition that he has limitations, that there is nothing he can do outside of the rules that have been handed to him, the rigid rules that have been handed to him. That's the only way he can get out of this cycle in which time and time again, I know only three times because there's only three family members, time and time again, his family members are going to die unless he steps in, unless he sacrifices one of them to end this whole pattern. And now we... The dryness of the film, film's tone, like it, it draws a sharp, it draws for me sharper attention on, on the moments when someone steps outside of its rigid bounds, and and for the most part, the only one that does that is Stephen, is Colin Farrell, and it's mainly when he's very angry, when he's outside of Stephen's house, banging on the door. Sorry, when he's outside of Martin's house, banging on the door, screaming about what he is going to do to both him and his mother. When he's in the kitchen yelling at Anna, um, going through the drawers and the cabinets, and um, you know, as he sarcastically declares, like looking for crocodile's teeth or pubes or this kind of thing to reverse this magic spell, he's being a dick to everyone around him. the The rules have been laid out very clearly, and he is rejecting them. He is refusing to accept them. He's even refusing to accept the opinions and the advice of his own wife, who herself is a medical professional. He's the only one that it, that rejects the reality of the things around him. His kids, even, despite the fact that there are terrible things happening to his kids, they just kind of accept it and roll with it and recognize, yeah, we're going, we've lost our, 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 feeling in our legs we are going to eventually lose our appetite our eyes are going to bleed and then we are going to die they accept that his wife accepts that they're not cool with it but they accept it martin obviously accepts that the only one that doesn't is steven and he responds with anger he responds with emotion he breaks this the rigid rules of the universe that he is in. And we always knew, you know, we know from the beginning there's some type of darkness in him. I mean, the the way that he prefers to have sex with his wife is if she pretends to be under the influence of general anesthetic. If she is just kind of lying there like a in a as a lifeless body. So we know that we know that there is darkness in him. And then it it, it it's kind of surprising then, based on how dry and rigid and uh, clinical everything has been laid out, when he has these outbursts of emotion, when he's screaming outside Martin's house, when he's physically assaulting Martin, it goes outside or it feels incongruous with the rules of this universe. 
the absurdity even of this character is highlighted through the dark humor that Lanthimos weaves into this. I mean, I couldn't help but laugh at the sequence when he's trying to, when he lifts up his son and he's trying to walk him around the the hospital corridor. And it's not so much walking as much as dragging his limp feet and then he's just dropping him continuously on the ground like a rag doll. It's absurd. It's dark and it's absurd, and it just highlights, once again, both of these things that exist inside of him. This anger, this refusal to accept the reality of the world around him, and the darkness which is inherent within him. He tries to jam a donut in his son's mouth. He tries to force-feed his son angrily. He drags him along the hospital corridor and continuously drops him on the ground because he can't accept the reality of this rigid universe that he's in. And yet, with all of this, um, the questions that I the, there are questions that I have that are sort of clouding my ultimate judgment. And to be clear, I'm not saying that this is bad; that these are faults of the film. This is entirely my own subjectivity and what I sort of need in order to really engage with a movie. Um, Completely, I guess. And and so, once again, entirely me, entirely me. Yorgos Lanthimos is not entitled or obligated, obligated being a better word, to appease me at all. To appease anyone, really. He makes the film that he wants to make. But for me, I, I kept thinking, did Stephen deserve what happened to him? His family certainly didn't deserve anything. And once again, the film does seem to speak to the fact that it was a mistake of Stevens, an avoidable mistake that caused Martin's father to die. And yet with that, you know, even with an, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of um, cynical uh, approach to the world, if Martin's dad is dead, then, then only one, well, here I am, coming to a realization of something as I'm as I'm speaking about it, as I'm thinking it out, out loud, then yeah, there only should be one... I for nine, tooth for tooth, one person for one person. And while that is ultimately the trade that is made, there is the threat of, I guess, interest, to put it crassly, that potentially the death of one person could result in the death of three people. And... I keep wondering, yes, Stephen is an asshole. He did something that resulted in the, the death of another person. And that has ripple effects down to Martin, to Martin's mom, to other people, of course. But did Stephen really deserve everything that he... that happened to him? What did happen with Martin's dad? And, 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 and also, this is a, a good question. How must Martin have felt when that happened? Because this all happens before the movie starts. When the movie starts, we are already seeing, you know, well into the relationship that Stephen is trying to strike up with Martin to kind of make up for what he has done, to compensate for what he has done. And so I'm not saying Stephen is a good person, but I'm saying he is trying to do something he knows that he is at fault, even if he doesn't admit it. There is something inside of him which is saying, I need to try and take care of this kid in whatever way that I can. So does he deserve what happens to him? Also, what is the allure 
of Martin to Kim. Because at the end of the film, when, when, you know, when they're walking out of the diner, she looks back and she kind of has a slight smile as though there is still something which is drawing her to Martin, even though her entire family suffered directly from this curse, if we want to call it that, that Martin applied or, or put on them. And her brother is now dead because of this kid's actions. What is the allure there? And I'm not saying answering these things explicitly would have made a better film. In your opinion, perhaps it would have even made it a worse film. It's just these are things that I can't seem to get past before I kind of ultimately come to grips with the movie. But even, you know, even at the top of the show, I quoted a film review in which the author said, this movie gives you no good answers. And that's true, and I guess that's the horror, I can't even say I guess, that is one of the most horrific horror elements of this movie, is not knowing. Is the uncertainty of why, or how, or any of this, and just, with the only certain thing being what one has lost, what the threats are. And this movie didn't end the way that I thought it was. I was so certain that how it was going to end was Stephen ultimately coming to the realization that in order for this curse to be reversed, he would have had to give of himself, that he would have had to have been the sacrifice. Because when he's standing in that living room, his family tied up, their heads covered so they can't see, and he's covering himself with a mask, spinning around in a circle to randomly choose which family member to kill, I kept thinking, he's going to realize none of these three deserve this. I am the one that deserves this, and I thought he was going to put the gun in his own mouth. And that didn't happen. Instead, what happens is randomness. The breaking of this rigidity of this world, it is a random action which breaks the curse and ends up in the death of his own son. I did not expect that. I expected kind of an arc um, in which he would come to some kind of realization that he, like Phil Connors, would accept there are so, there's something I, I, I can't, I have no control over. But there is something that Phil Connors ultimately realizes is he's going to do what he can to benefit others, to take care of others, to make the world around him a better place. And I thought that's what Stephen would come to as well, that in order to make it a better place for his family, he would be the one to have to go, since he was the perpetrator of all this to begin with. And that's not what happened. And I know that uh, Lanthimos is, is cynical towards humanity or people. I mean, if you've seen um, The Lobster and you've seen The Favorite, then you certainly know that he is cynical towards systems, to social constructs, to... Um, people being good to each other. But this one sort of bordered on nihilism in a little bit, in the sense of why did this all happen and what did we all learn and we are all worse off 
at the end of this story than we were at the beginning of this story. And uh, that's just something, once again, that I'm thinking through and kind of struggling with a little bit. There are, there's so much about this film, which is great. If I had seen it in 2017, probably would have made my top 10 of 2017. But I think would have been pretty near the bottom of that. It, you know, probably at number 10 or number 9 or something like that. But um, it's an excellent film in many regards. But it's, I think, of all the, the Lanthimos stuff I've seen, probably the most cynical. And there are these questions that I still can't kind of get my head around and that's ultimately kind of um keeping me from really loving it now maybe i will answer those questions or come to some kind of revolution or <laughs> resolution or just accept uh that there's things that i can't get answers to that are outside of my control and i'll make peace with it but keep, uh, stay tuned for that i suppose um Killing of a Sacred Deer uh, is free to stream on Netflix, uh, Canopy, or Hoopla. Um, but if you don't have subscriptions to either of those services, or any of those services, I should say, um, it's available for rental or purchase pretty much everywhere else. Uh, Redbox, Amazon, Google Play, YouTube, Vudu, Apple TV, Fandango Now, DirecTV, and the Microsoft Store are all places that you can get your hands on this movie but um that does it for the killing of a sacred deer i am very curious as to any thoughts disagreements that anyone has any potential answers to those questions or conclusions that you came to feel free to email me at you do movies badly at gmail.com tweet at me at nolan fixes teeth to uh chime in in the comments field by going to uh battleshipretention.com and finding i do movies badly in the podcast drop down menu Go to idomoviesbadly.podbean.com, and of course, you can listen to back episodes pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts. Um, Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, Amazon Music, and uh, I believe it's on Stitcher as well, but I'm not entirely sure about that. Um, yeah, so that does it for um, The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Thank you for listening. Uh, be sure to tune in next week, where I will be covering House, and where hopefully I will be just a little bit less ignorant. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 